Hi, this is Jim Colton, and this is the Driven Golf Podcast. In this episode, we first chat with Kai Golby, a highly respected golf course shaper and architect. Kai talks about growing up in the game as a son of a Masters champion and how he pivoted from amateur golf into golf course construction over 30 years ago. More recently, Kai worked with PGA Tour player Zach Blair to build the Tree Farm in Aiken, South Carolina, one of the best golf courses to open in 2023. In Angle of Attack, Andrew and I continue with the second of our three-part series on tournament prep for elite junior golfers. In this episode, we discuss how to get the most out of that practice round leading up to an event. This episode is brought to you as always by Flagbag Golf Company. Flagbag makes custom golf bags and accessories using repurposed old golf flags. Each bag truly is a one of one. Go to flagbaggolfco.com for more information and mention Driven Golf to receive a free custom head cover with the purchase of one of their custom golf bags. With that, here's episode eight with Kai Golby. All right, Kai Golby, welcome to the Driven Golf Podcast. How's it going? Good, Jim. Thanks for having me. Yes, yeah, it's, uh, it's great catching here. up. I was doing a little bit of research, and I think that you and I actually have a, quite a bit in common. We both grew up in suburban Illinois, uh, you in the uh, suburbs of St. Louis and me in Chicago. Uh, you growing up mostly, I think, in the 70s and 80s, uh, myself in the 80s and 90s, and both you know, growing up with the game of golf. Probably the main difference is uh, my dad is not a Masters champion. Your dad, Bob Golby, 1968 Masters champ. I was thinking about this because I counted, I think there's about, there's 56 different Masters champions over its history. So my guess is there's probably only about 100 to 150 people that could say, hey, my dad won the Masters. So you're in pretty, uh, pretty rarefied air there. No, Billy Cowboy had a lot of kids. He might he might up that number a little bit. <laughs> yeah, it's funny you say that because I, I went to a master's practice round in 1996 and it was uh, the, the par three day. And I saw Billy Casper was playing in the par three that day. And I was thinking about your dad, you know, just how the Masters and Augusta National, they do such a great job of celebrating their history, uh, celebrating their champions. And I recall your dad uh, going to the champions dinner even into his 90s. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. He uh, he loved that. He loved going there. And so he died in 2022 in January. And in 2021, he attended the Champions Dinner. So every year from 1969 on, he went. Wow. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah. So he, he enjoyed it a lot. He'd tell us some great stories. I, a lot of them I probably can't even tell you, but he would he would come back and he was always pretty excited. Just I mean, it's a pretty great room to go hang out in. <laughs> so can you maybe we start there like what is it like growing up as the son of a master's champ i have to believe you were maybe too young to remember like when he won but like just the fact that growing up and say hey, my dad's a professional golfer a master's champion i know st louis sports is uh you know it's a huge sports mecca and i know they celebrate sort of their homegrown talents and you know i imagine your dad was in this town of belleville illinois you know, pretty much a celebrity in that town. So that had been a pretty unique experience growing up. Yeah, he was actually, you know, I obviously wasn't around, but in high school, he was kind of the big star in high school sports. He was a, I think he had 13 varsity letters in wow. high school and like was a high school quarterback and he won the, won their big high school uh, Thanksgiving day game against East St. Louis that there was a big thing. You know, he won that himself basically his senior year and he played on a state champion baseball team. And he 
started in basketball, he told us like every all four years and he fouled out of every single game he played in. <laughs> so he's a little, little bit of a hothead, I guess on the court. So, uh, but yeah, it was growing up with him, you know, as the master's champion, I was four when he won. So, you know, it really wasn't a big TV event back then, like it is now, but I remember him coming home. We weren't there. And I remember we went to the airport to pick him up. And I do remember that. And I remember him coming home with the green jacket. And in hindsight, we learned that he wasn't allowed to take that off the site. And, but he left with it and took off. And he's like the next day, Clifford Roberts called, like might've called that night. He's like, Hey, you got to get that thing back here. What are you doing? He's like, Hey, no one told me. But anyway, I got to wear that thing. I remember, I do remember as a kid four, you know, maybe I'm three feet tall or something. And I'm running around the house with the green jacket on. It was dragging around my feet. And I told us where there was some cartoon called the green ghost back then. And I thought I was the green ghost and I was running around the house with the jacket on. So I have worn the green jacket before. So, but it was interesting as a kid, you know, in that town, everyone, like, you know, I was growing up, everyone, obviously he was a big deal having won the masters and, um, you know, everybody would see you and, around town. Oh, a little, are you going to be a master's champion? A little, you know, Hey, little guy, that kind of thing. So there was some maybe unwanted attention as a kid that you're like, Hey man, I just want to be a kid going to school and, you know, playing at recess and playing little league baseball and stuff and maybe not being noticed, but there was a hell of a lot more advantages that came from it than those little issues. So. Yeah. We need to talk about that because maybe not everyone is aware, uh, the 1968 masters, really an unfortunate incident for all parties involved. Uh, it really, to this day, it is known as the Roberto Davy Senzo uh, signing the wrong scorecard, the uh, what a stupid I am uh, quote, and that's sort of its lasting legacy. But when I say it's unfortunate for all parties involved, like Davy Senzo, he had won the Open Championship uh, the year prior, right, in 1967. And his legacy is often tied to this master's mistake uh, more so than actually winning a major championship. And I think for your dad, it's unfortunate because he he played a fantastic round of golf, uh, the final round. He won the event fair and square. But then this uh, this incident sort of overshadowed his uh, accomplishment. Is that something that sort of kind of haunted him through his life? I don't know if it haunted him, Jim. I mean, early on, when he first won, it was obviously a difficult situation because that was going on. That was the main narrative of the the tournament and a lot of people, you know, you're saying you're a golf nerd, but most people don't remember this stuff nowadays, but a lot of people then thought dad was keeping his score and like signed his, like put the wrong score on his scorecard so he could win, you know, and he wasn't playing in the same group with him. He was behind Roberto. And, uh, so that was, you know, he got a lot of letters and when he just died uh, a couple of years ago, year and a half ago, whatever it was, he had boxes of letters that people sent him telling him what a terrible person he was and, you know, for ruining Roberto's tournament and all those kind of things. So it, there was definitely some things he had to deal with. He got some good advice from some friends. He's talked about Joe Dye giving him some advice just to kind of just keep his mouth shut, so to speak. And just, and Bobby Jones was really nice to him about how that happened. And he sent him a really cool letter, which I actually have on my wall back here that, you know, told him he won fair and square by the rules of golf and he is the champion and those kind of things and telling him how he was the finest shots he'd seen coming down the stretch and ever in that tournament. So there was, you know, he obviously had some things to deal with, but 
in the long run, he got to be the Masters champion for, you know, 50 something more years and go back to Augusta. And so it worked out just fine for him, but it was unfortunate for sure. Yeah. I mean, what a, what a great legacy. I mean, and and the other thing we should mention is growing up in Belleville, Illinois, I think just down the street from you, in a lot of ways, you guys are like the first family of golf, right? You, not only your dad, but also your cousins, Jay Haas, Jerry Haas growing up just down the street and Jay Haas, I don't know how many masters he's played in. I, I think Jerry Haas has played in, in one himself. Like, what was that like just having sort of the Augusta National and the masters on the calendar sort of, was that like a central kind of focus and, and theme for your family as you were growing up? I don't really remember that exactly, but it was, you know, as I got to be in my teens, dad was really, it wasn't something he knew he was going to get competitive anymore. He won the masters when he was 38 and I was four. So you take when I'm 14, you know, he's, he's not in the tournament anymore, so to speak. And uh, so he's 48 years old, I guess, and 78. So he wasn't competing as trying to win. I'm guess I'm saying, and, but I did get to go down there a lot. And we did, the family would go down. Um, usually the hosses, we went down a lot with them. I can remember being down there when Jay and Jerry and my dad all played. That was 85. I was in college and they all three were in the same tournament. And they're actually on the cover of Golf World that week. Just all three playing in the tournament as in the same family. That was all pretty cool. And I actually remember Jerry was playing and he was playing well. And he shot four under on the front nine on Sunday that down there and was walking off number nine green and the leaderboards back there. And he was, I think he was five under at that point and the leaders were like six. And I remember going, Oh man, screw the amateur, man. You can win this thing. Just keep going. You kick some ass kind of in between nine and 10 where you'd walk through there. And I just, I probably should have kept my mouth shut and he ended up shooting 42 in the back. So I felt kind of bad. I was like, yeah, I probably should have <laughs> shut up. <laughs> so, but, uh, now we had a lot of really great things going on down there and just a lot of great opportunities. I mean, I had so many opportunities that nobody else would ever get just going down there during the practice rounds, going in the champions locker room and just sitting in that champions locker room for 15 years, just hanging out up there. And you're technically not supposed to go in there, but they didn't care if you brought your son or somebody in there a little mm-hmm. bit. So just hanging out in that little room, but the people that were in there was pretty damn cool. <laughs> well, you said your dad going there for, for 50 years, you know, not only just like as you were younger, but like you, uh, you basically lived through this evolution of the greats of the game, right? Like the Sam Snead era to Jack Nicholas to, you know, all the way up to Tiger and some of the, you know, the modern. Yeah, giants. you were so, seeing Sarazen down there when I first was going down there, you know? So, I mean, sitting there talking to him, where's his knickers? So it was like, you know, he, when I'm 15 years old, I thought he was like 150 years old at that time. But, you know, so yeah, we saw, definitely saw all those guys and it was pretty cool. And, and uh, I, I recall um, reading somewhere that your, your dad and Sam Sneed were, were really lifelong friends. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. They were very close. And, uh, you know, Sam would come up to the house and they'd hang out and they would, they spend a lot of time together. Um, actually, I'm looking over my shoulder, Sam's hat's back there. And, uh, you kidding me? So, yeah, so we had a lot of cool stuff with him. I mean, I remember I played a practice round with my dad illegally one year. I think I was 14. We were, I was caddying for him. I was spring break or something in school. I don't even know. And I went to Greensboro with him 
which was back then the tournament before the Masters. And he missed the cut. So we drove down to Augusta and he was playing that Saturday and Sunday ahead of the, you know, when the weekend in Greensboro is going on. And so we went out and that's when they had the Augusta caddies. You didn't have your own caddy back then. You just went down and took a caddy. So Saturday morning we went out and uh, we got out. He's like, all right, you're going to play, but you're not hitting a shot on the first tee here. If Clifford Roberts sees you, I won't be able to play in the tournament. <laughs> and so I went out, he, I dropped the ball on the first fairway and played my way around and then picked up after I hit into 18 and didn't putt on 18 green. So, but uh, that day we played and we were playing with Sam. So, I mean, that was kind of, all right, that's kind of cool. You know, that's something you don't get to do too often. Wow. That's amazing. When I'm not producing podcasts, actually the podcasts that I listen to in this day and age are, I listen to a lot of like college golf coaches just to find out how they tick and get to know a little bit about their background. I, I recall I actually recently listened to uh, one with Jerry Haas, your cousin, who's now the the golf coach at Wake Forest. And, you know, he played on the tour. He mentioned that your your dad was really his his main teacher. Is that something that you I, I believe you live really close to a, a Langford golf course? Is that where you grew up? Playing? Yeah, and Jerry, like- Jerry and Jay grew up. I don't even know. We were kind of around the corner on the street, kind of did a 90 degrees. So I don't know if you went on the backside of the triangle or even closer. We were like six or seven, seven houses away from each other. And so basically between my house and getting to this Langford golf course, which was St. Clair was his house. So just ride my bike with her golf bag on our shoulder, go stop at Jerry's. And we, he and I would just go over the golf course. We were basically the same age. So I can't even count how many rounds of golf or just holes we would have played or chipped around on some of the greens in the evenings and just different stuff, playing cross country golf as kids, like, you know, just we'll start here and go to there. Cause there's back then there weren't that many people on the golf course in the evenings and you could just sort of knock around and go wherever you wanted. It was a great opportunity that was. And Jerry was way better than me. And as far as like getting lessons from my dad or being taught by my dad, he also probably listened to my dad a lot more than I did as, <laughs> as my dad. I was like, oh, not that. you don't know what you're talking about where Jerry and Jay were listening to everything he had to say. So maybe they were a little smarter than me too. Well, you must have been pretty decent because you ended up playing at Wake Forest, right? With, with Jerry. And this was part yeah. of, I think Wake Forest, you know, really dominating in a lot of ways, you know, I had the legacy of obviously Arnold Palmer, but I think Jay what, won a couple of national championships with Curtis Strange. Yeah. He and Curtis, I think it was 74 and 75. I think they won back to back and each one individually. And then we actually won my senior year in 86 NCAAs, but I was no part of that team at that point. I had pretty much given up on golf, but Jerry was gone that year, graduated. But uh, so, yeah, there was a lot of good players down there. So what you you said, you sort of gave up the competitive golf or you realized that pro golf wasn't going to be your path. Is that what 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 ended up leading ultimately leading uh, into golf course design and how'd you get into that? Yeah, well, like we just mentioned in college, my senior year, I swear to, I don't even know if I picked up my clubs. I was just sick of golf and sort of probably too into having fun in college too. But uh, yeah, when I got out of school, I had a roommate from Boston and I moved to Boston and got a job. I was an economics major and got a job with Fidelity Investments and was going to do the finance thing and spent a couple of years up there and realized I wasn't meant to be just probably like playing golf on the Wake Forest team, realizing a lot of guys have a heck of a lot more passion, desire, and talent 
at the game than I did. And I think the same thing in finance. There's a lot of guys way more interested in making money than I was. And so I kind of knew that wasn't going to be my thing. And I was thinking about what I would like to do. I wanted to get outside. And a guy that had been an assistant pro for my dad out in Palm Springs when we were kids, he was out there for a few years as a club pro and started a golf club out there. But this kid was the guy was his assistant pro had gotten into golf construction. I was like, man, I might, that might be cool. I'll call him. Maybe I could go out and do like help build a golf course. And, uh, so I was thinking about that and my dad called and he's like, yeah, these guys in Belleville where we grew up, we're going to, they're building a golf course. And they were asking who they should have design. And he's like, I told him I would. And so he actually got a job right when I was thinking of this to help these guys design to design a golf course. And so I quit and went to hell. I was, I'm going to come help. So I didn't know what the heck I was doing. And, uh, <laughs> It was just a great opportunity, though, because it was, you know, we were building a course. It was already routed. It was a housing development in the early 90s, that kind of thing. So there was already the corridors were kind of set up. And so we just had to figure out how to get some holes in there. And my dad was doing TV then for NBC. So he was gone a lot during the summer doing those tournaments. And so I got to have a lot more input than I should have and couldn't get on machines. It was a union, very hardcore union area. And so everybody in the machine had to be in the union. So you were just kind of kicking dirt around and dad had a tub of sand in the back of a pickup truck that he would kind of model 3D greens and things out in to show the guys, okay, I wanted to look like this. And so kind of played around with that. And so that's how it all got started. And that was 1990. And uh, so I was four years after I graduated from college. And uh, that's how it got started. And it just kind of snowballed from there. Yeah. So this is really like the heyday of where golf courses are just sprouting up. Yeah. 500 were getting built or something like that. And that's literally how I got really lucky because in St. Louis, there was this thing going on. It was like, there was 10 golf courses a year getting built. And one of the guys that was actually shaping on the job, he and I ended up getting two jobs on our own right out of the, right after that. And then got another one a few years later. And I kind of did the routing for that and, started doing, I started to be able to shape actually the next couple of jobs, building stuff, getting on the dozer. So yeah, it was very fortunate. I mean, I did my own design when I was what year 20, 28 years old, you know? So, and that's, and I had no business doing that, but that's just how it was. And there were so many projects being done. So. Yeah, that's amazing. So like you said, this is, this is going, I guess, over, 30 years of, of golf course shaping, golf course construction, golf course architecture. And this career, this path is taking you to all around the world, to some of the best golf courses uh, in the world. You've worked on 12, 15 projects, I think, for Tom Doak. Like what ultimately, what led from kind of doing your solo thing to ultimately meeting Tom Doak and, and then working with him? Yeah, I was doing a project with my dad, actually, it was called Champions Trail at that time. And they had a the ownership group included Jay Haas, Curtis Strange, and uh, you're talking about Belleville. Jimmy Connors, a tennis player, was also from that, grew up at that Langford golf course, that club. That's where he learned, that's where he played tennis. So we had some diff- decent talent around. So anyway, he had these uh, the investors, this group, and some other local guys doing that golf course. And it kind of, the usual thing, some financial things went on. and. The guy with the most money ended up buying it and decided to change a lot of the things we had done at the last minute, like the next year, he 
change some of the golf course around. So I was kind of frustrated by that. And we were building it. I knew I had some ideas different than my dad. And I was like, you know, I really want to do a little more. I've been reading all the design books at that point. I'd read pretty much anything that was available that you go through the whole library of what books it might be. The golf architecture, America read Doak's books, just, you know, architectural side of golf, just reading all those things, getting more ideas, knowing my dad wasn't really that deeply into the architecture element. And it's like, I'd really like to kind of push this. So I reached out to Tom after reading the anatomy of a golf course, that golf course I built when I was 28 routed the whole thing. And a lot of what I did was taking advice out of his book on where to, you know, find green sites and those kind of things. And I can remember thinking, oh, this guy acts like he knows everything, but he can't know everything. <laughs> and, uh, but you know, what I used from his book worked pretty well. So I sent a letter to him. I sent a letter to Bill Core, who went to Wake Forest mm-hmm. and reached out to Pete Dye as well. And Pete basically told me to pound sand and Tom got back to me and you know, wonder, know if I wanted to come help him. And I'm like, heck yeah. And so, I don't know, a few months after that whole process, ended up out at Apache Stronghold working for Tom. So kind of went from there. That's interesting. I just had Brian Schneider on in episode seven. And uh, I think it's maybe where he first met you was at Apache Stronghold at the Renaissance Cup you mentioned. Yep. Yeah. And then you know, yeah, fortunately for me, after that, Brian, I think it was on your podcast, Brian came and worked for me for a while. And uh, he and I didn't have any success, mostly because of me not being able to get out there and get any jobs. We had a few to start with, and then it kind of went downhill. And it was hard to do that, too, at the time, to kind of go out and try to get some crappy job building two bunkers on a garbage golf course when you had been working with Tom a little bit. And when we, when we kind of got together, Tom had just gotten Pacific dunes and I had this guy at a pension fund. Who's like, I've got a hundred million dollars of pension money to buy golf courses and build golf courses. I want you to do it all. And I'm like, this is going to be great. So that's when I brought Brian on anyway, this whole thing about a year and a half in imploded with this guy's pension fund money, some financial shenanigans and things like that. (laughs) So we had done one golf course and started a second and then that went downhill. And like I said, there was, Oh, you could do two little bunkers here or there, but Tom's doing Pacific dunes. And it's like, Oh, we could have been out there instead. And it was just hard to do that when you knew there was really cool golf to be done. And so I basically went back with Tom and Brian got stuck going back doing maintenance for a while. But uh, actually I gave him some money and he did get to go live in, in England for the summer and see every golf course in England and Scotland. So maybe it didn't work out so bad for him yeah, either. I think, it, I think it worked out. Yeah. So, so what, what would you say you, you talked about designing courses on your own and then was it sort of eye opening, you know, being with Doak and his crew and just seeing how he operated and seeing how he managed his crews and see how he kind of brought out the best in them. Yeah. I don't know if maybe it was almost eye opening the other way. Cause when I went out there, Jim Rabina was running that job. And I think it was like February of 98 that I went out there and I didn't even see Tom for like two and a half weeks. So we were just building stuff and Tom wasn't even there. And I was like, I don't wonder if he's going to like this stuff, you know, building greens. Basically I was out there building the greens and built a couple just to get started based on what Jim kind of said Tom wanted to do. And then Tom came out and it was really just Tom, myself and this guy, Randy Ray, who had done some bunkers for them. At Unwencia. So there was really no crew to speak of. I mean, 
just a bunch of Apache Indians and me and Randy. And uh, so I guess some eye opening was just how lean things were. But I think I've said this before on that job, you know, Tom had done a great job with the routing and there was green sites that were just sitting in some of these natural contours. And I was like, all right, this is different. And most people that I knew would not have built a green in some of these places. And so that was pretty cool for me, just getting to see some of that and just how, how little we did in a lot of places. And then we did shape a lot of the fairways, but like how little around a lot of the greens that we just did, they were just kind of sitting there. I'd say over half of them were almost just there. So that was pretty cool. Yeah, just a little bit, a little bit of background for folks that maybe aren't familiar. So Apache Stronghold, I think, is out way out in the sticks um, in Arizona on Indian yeah, Reservation Arizona, land. Maybe 100 miles from Phoenix, kind of up in the hills. Yeah. And it uh, unfortunately, it, uh, it doesn't exist any longer. Right. It had sort of fits and starts. I don't and, think so. It kept it was like existed and it shouldn't have. It was like run down and not taken care of. And I don't even I don't think it exists anymore either. Yeah, I remember playing with someone who who well traveled, greatly respected his opinion, and this is going back like ten, twelve years. But he had said that Apache Stronghold was his favorite dope course, uh, which uh, speaks volumes. I think. Yeah, he was really good, and if if it was ever actually in good shape, which it hardly ever was, you know, it's too bad. It was it was very cool, and you know, I kind of think back on that how little I knew. We started out like one of the first holes we worked on was the Bradan hole, and which is the 14th hole. And I didn't even know what a Redan was. <laughs> I'd been working on golf courses for seven years at that point. And didn't even know, you know, I just, ah, just building cool greens. So I wasn't even aware really what national golf links I knew of it, but I didn't really know. I'd never been there. So then they were talking, about, Hey, we should this, the, the ninth green is going to be something like a double plateau. So again, it's like, I'm not really sure what that is either. So <laughs> they were, yeah, we want this high, this high over here. And, Sometimes I wonder if maybe that's how, because they all turned out pretty cool. And it's like, maybe that's how the Ranger guys got along. The guys really didn't know what the hell they were building, but the concepts were sort of explained to them. And you got these different versions slightly yeah. that someone didn't, had never seen what they were really supposed to be building. You know, maybe that was stupidity like me. <laughs> yeah. I mean, at least double plateau, you could, you could maybe infer to it you know, by definition, right. But Redan yeah. without any context, yeah. uh, it would be tough to figure out, but you, obviously you did figure it out. Cause there is a, uh, a great Redan, I think at, at tree farm, the, the 15th hole, we'll talk about that uh, a little yeah. bit later. Yeah. I, I guess there's three courses, three dope courses I want to maybe take a deeper dive on. Cause they're really, I think three projects that you worked on and literally three of my favorite golf courses in the world. The first we got to talk about is, is Ballyneal, which probably isn't a huge, yeah. Surprise yeah, to you. Yeah. So um, uh, I'm going to ask you a couple of the same questions I had asked Brian in, in episode seven, because uh, he was obviously involved in, in that as well. Uh, the one question I had asked, if you had to pick one Ballyneal green to be as your backyard putting green, uh, which would you choose? And it's not necessarily your favorite green, but it's just would you, which would you want to have to practice around and, and putt on every day? I, I picked six, which Brian had said that you had a hand in, in building. So uh, kudos to you on that. But I wonder what your answer is on that. Never thought of it other than I heard you mention it to Brian and never really thought about which one I would pick through that process. And you know, just trying to figure out if you're going to have in your backyard, you'd really want something where you could probably practice as many different kind of chip shots as you could think of. And, you know, six isn't a bad, 
a bad call. And I know you mentioned your son said 18. That's not bad. I think you could have a lot of fun with 14 even just because up in the air, you could do a lot of cool little chips. There's not a lot happening in that green like the other ones. God, it's just a, it's a good question. I don't know. I'm going to, I mean, I go with you. I might stick with six. Yeah. Just, there's a lot of different chips you can do. You got the right side that you can kind of chip up to and kind of bump and run it in the front. So that's probably a pretty good one. Yeah. I've, I've given this concept way too much thought but yeah i mean number six <laughs> number six is is my uh my answer and you said you you brian said you built six is that correct yes yeah, i mean tom had a little bit of a concept there we cut some of the hill you can kind of tell behind the green we kind of cut into that to, there was but there was three knobs in there and he just wanted to kind of get another one out front left as you're playing the hole so we took some of the dirt off the hill in the back pushed that forward and kind of made a little bump on the front left to hold some things up and then just kind of created some contours out of sort of what was there with cutting the back half out. But yeah, that was, that was fun. That was, that hole was kind of, kind of boring when you first saw it, it just kind of sat out there real, just a big open field. And we did a lot of decent work in the fairway on that one to make it a little more interesting on the ground, just some, some movement. But, uh, yeah, so you were trying to guess which greens everybody did. So you guys have a contest <laughs> or something about this? Or? Well, it's just, you know, you're just sitting around talking about stuff. And I, that's where I wanted to go next because I, I honestly have to say, I mean, I, I think what I've gleaned from talking to other shapers, folks that have worked with you, I think if they had to describe you, it's just sort of like you're like the pro's pro. Like you, uh, Eric Iverson said that you're like pretty much devoid of ego. I think there's a reason why Doak and Gill and you know, the top architects hire you out is they know they're going to get quality work. You're going to come in, come out. And oftentimes, like, I honestly don't know which greens that you built because I think it's not really about you necessarily. And I think that maybe is, is a testament to, you know, how you, you operate. But if I was trying to glean a couple guesses just based on what I saw at Tree Farm and then obviously what you just indicated with number six, my, my sense is that your greens blend really well into their surrounds and that you're able to make the internal, internal contours sort of make sense relative to everything else that's going, um, going on around there. So I, when I was thinking about that it, from that perspective, some of the greens that I'd come up with, I don't know, man, this is going to be, I'm probably going to go over three if I guess. <laughs> I think there was about seven of them I had a hand in, but maybe four that I did kind of alone. Okay. But well, I, I did jot down sev seven answers. But based on number six, I did you have a hand in number 17? Uh, yeah, that was one I did. Oh, okay. So I was thinking about like a, a relatively wild green on top of a very, very difficult par four. And I, and I honestly think like, I mean, this is... I've probably played 450 rounds of golf at Ballyneal. I've never birdied 17, which is sort of a, it's like a running joke at the club. So like people that see me, they just ask, oh, have you birdied 17 this weekend? Like, nope, still yeah. haven't birdied 17. But uh, it's uh, When become, you hit your drive there, where do you usually end up? Well, for the first, I would say seven years, I was a member of Ballyneal. I had the duck hooks, you know, I'm left-handed. So I was always in that bunker, right? Um, I've had a number of like, awesome par saves getting up and down from like a hundred yards. But like just in the last like four or five years, I actually had birdie chances. I think it was probably even five years before I even reached a green in regulation. Uh, but I, but I think 
to its credit, like I think it's one of the great long par fours in the world, even though I it's haven't had cool. much, much success uh, in it. But I think that green is, is really cool. Um, and there's just so much going on. And like that back left pin, man, it's, when it's back there, that's really tough. It's like a little ridge coming off the right side, kind of in the middle. That's a little something I threw in there one time and it kind of got blown away. And Tom was out and was like, well, why don't you put that thing back? It's like, I don't even, I don't even know if I can remember exactly what I had in there. And so Tom was actually better than me actually remembering what, what that little thing was kind of closer to what it was like, which is a cool little feature in the green. Yeah. Yeah. And then I'll go out there with my son and he'll birdie it like three times in seven yeah. rounds, you know, just to rub it in. Other greens that sort of fit that similar mold, uh, I would say like number two, number 13, and number 10. Um, did you have a hand uh, in any of those? You're over kind of in those. Okay. Um, I worked a little bit on 10. Eric Iverson built 10 and he wasn't there very often. He just kind of made a few quick appearances. And so a lot of times the wind would blow things apart or people would drive through them for two months. And like that green, there was nowhere to get through. And sometimes people would drive their vehicles through it. So I had to put it back together a little bit, but that was really Eric's. So, okay. And then two was Brian Slonick and Eric actually built that. And then uh, what else did you say? 10? No, you said 10, 13. 13. Yeah. 13 was all Schneider. Okay. Wow. And then I'm going to ask, I'm going to throw one more out there just because I, I, even if it's not you, I want to find out who did number eight. Basically Schneider is a little bit of everyone, but I actually, we've laughed about this because I kind of ruined it, suppose. <laughs> so during, uh, during the, I don't know if maybe I shouldn't even tell this part, but during we were getting ready to seed and Brian wasn't there and the seeder, the hydro seeder was parked out in front of the fairway and eight in front of the green and the green needed to be floated out. And I was on there and I was like, this doesn't seem right on the upper deck. I thought the upper deck looked a little off. And so I started sand pro and, and knocking some of this little ridge off of the top. And when I, I got done. I kind of overcooked it. And I was like, I think I went a little too far here. And the guys were like, we got to, we got to grass this now. I was like, well, hold on a second. And I should have just told them to go away. But anyway, they seeded it. And so there was a little, there's a little bump below the upper step on the right that I, or it was dirt. I pushed off the upper step and I immediately told Bruce, man, I got to go take that thing out. We got to go yank that out, pull the hydro seat off and get that back off of there and seat it again. And he's like, I oh, will talk to Doke about it. And Tom didn't seem to, worry about it so anyway that's a little, my little part of eight now, schneider and i always joke that i ruined the green so yeah so but, brian talked a, a little bit about last episode or episode seven um around the atvs and you almost killing yourself on the 12th hole but just like the overall i think environment of Neal and just like the fun and the creativity i remember tom telling a story about napoleon dynamite being like sort of the central theme that you guys were watching I, I did want to ask, like, which member of the crew uh, has the best recreation of the the dance scene at the final uh, the final scene of Napoleon Dynamite? Yeah, I don't think any of us ever went that deep on theirs. <laughs> I was going to go Mike McCartan. I thought you know you he know, could probably pull that off. If there was, you know, McCartan probably would have been the best at it. If we ever, I don't think we ever tried to do the dance. It was more just quote the stupid quotes out of that movie that just went nonstop. But uh, yeah, McCartan would have been probably the best Napoleon dancer. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. I don't know if or just, we had a lot of fun there. Mike and people don't know who Mike really is, but probably in the golf 
nerd business, but he was a great help to us at that time. And he had long hair. He came from Duke and just graduated, came out there and he had this long blonde hair and it was hot out there. And he shaved his head one night and he comes out to work the next day with like shaved down to nothing. And I don't think that skin on his head had seen the sun in, you know, <laughs> 18 years. And he went out and was working in that sand. It's like 110 degrees, no shade. And then that, that day, his head was like the size of a watermelon and like as red as a tomato, just had swollen <laughs> up from being in the sun with his shaved head. So that was that's what I think about Mike out there. That's uh, that's hilarious. Uh, a couple other courses, um, Rock Creek Cattle Company in Montana. I believe you spent some time out there. Yeah. Uh, uh, kind of one one season, really, maybe a little bit of the next season. The one thing I, you know, it's aptly named uh, Rock Creek because I, I remember Tom talking about, you know, just the, like the fairway shaping and doing the, doing the earthwork there. You know, uh, now, like on the sides of the fairways, like you you have rocks and boulders and stuff. You really don't want to miss uh, a fairway too wide out there. Um, but, you know, he was saying like when you would do some shaping, you'd uncover a boulder and you wouldn't know if it was like the size of uh, a kitchen table or like the size of a Volkswagen, like, um, yeah, or I mean, it might be the size of a basketball, you know, yeah. you just, you see something on the surface and you're like, Oh, just, and you just pray basically that it was going to be something that would fit in the excavator bucket. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. We spent a lot, a lot of time stacking, just piling up rocks and it kind of became we sound like we just goof off all the time, but it kind of became a little bit of a joke, almost like a game of Jenga, like just build these stacks of rocks over to the side of where you're working just to see what kind of a tower of rocks you can build. <laughs> so there was, I had a couple of 25 foot tall little towers of rocks that were just sitting to the side of bunkers and greens and things. Yeah. I mean that, you know, we're going to talk about Taridi in a minute. And as people say that Taridi is probably one of the most ideal you know, settings for golf. I, I happen to think that Rock Creek is probably the most beautiful place that I've ever played golf. And I think what Tom had done a masterful job with that routing, which is obviously we talk about the rocks, but just like the scale in terms of being on this giant property and with the mountains and everything, not a easy course to route, I would imagine, but just the way he was able to seamlessly blend this walkable routing where you have just like this varied landscape, like every hole has sort of like what's immediately in front of you and it also like seamlessly blends with like the the surrounds and everything behind it and just like the landscape so so masterfully yeah one of the guys working with us out there at the time chris hunt who like mike mccartan's no longer in the business but chris was talking about the landscape envelopes all the time because he had his degree in landscape architecture and but that place is, that's the first thing I think about is just how you move into the different portions of the property. And it's like you said, it's kind of seamless. You sort of transition. It's not like you're just this harsh transition. And there's so many different elements of that land. And it is, it's, it's pretty amazing how it works and how it's, you can actually walk it pretty easily. Yeah. yeah. It's like the short views versus the long views. And that's how they blend together. It's just so amazing yeah. out there. Now that place it's really good. And I mean, I'm surprised more people don't think that's better than it. Like, don't talk about it. I don't know. Maybe they haven't seen it, but it's pretty great. Yeah. It's been, you know, it's been climbing up the rankings. So I think it's definitely getting to some notice for sure. And then Tara Edie, speaking of rankings, like ranked in the top 20 in the world. You spent some, I think Brian Slonick ran that job, but you spent some time out there as well. Yeah. Brian was there for two and a half years, almost straight, I think. 
and I got to go down twice when, during the building season and spend, we would work in the winter down there just because in the summer it didn't rain as much and the sand would blow more. So we built the golf and then you kind of got it done just in time for the, a little warmer for the grass to grow. But so the two winters, New Zealand winters that I was down there, which was our summers was, it was great. It was probably one of the most fun times I've ever had working on a golf course. Yeah. You mentioned Brian being out there for a long time. There were some delays for, I don't know what, permitting or whatever. And, and I, yeah, I, and getting started. I think Brian was like, you know, constantly like fiddling with the course in a good way. Like, like just all the, the details and the surrounds and just like, uh, I remember Tom talking about that, how it was able to really improve the course because he was on, on site, just noodling, noodling with it for so long. Yeah. And we also had, just like any job that you do this, it's really all about the people that you have there helping the talent that's there. We had some great kids as Brian called in the art department down there at the time and Clyde Johnson and Pete Zarlingo. And, uh, we just had a lot of guys down there that were, uh, on the sand pros basically the whole time, just adding, just working the features. So, um, that was really great just what those guys were able to did do. Did you have a hand in the third green there? Cause that's a, like just a huge, like punch bowl green. Yeah, not really. I mean, a little bit just cleaning things up, but really I didn't do much of any of the greens down there. Brian was really wanting to do as many as he could. And then Tom would come down for his visits and usually Eric and Schneider would come with him for those kind of 10 days or so. And those guys did most of the greens. I took a, I did some of five and I originally started some of 17 and really I didn't touch many of the greens. I spent almost my whole time trying to put fairway contours into the thing. Cause we cleared it. It was all cleared with trees. And so the fairway contours were kind of created. And so I spent most of my time doing that. A lot of the bumps out in front of that green or stuff I built, but I didn't do much of the greens. Well, I'm going to, I'm going to put you on the spot here a little bit. Cause I, I read an interview, I think it was on golf club Atlas that you did and, and you really gave props, I think to, uh, to Tom and some, of uh, some of the shapers, some of we've already talked about in this interview already, but I asked one, one of Tom's guys, uh, about you. And this is what they said. They said, Kai is family. We've worked together off and on for over 20 years. Everyone's work is better. If Kai is on the job, relentless in making sure everything is as good as it can be. Some might call him a shaper, but he's really an architect on a machine. Great fun to be around during and after work. And if he thinks what you've done sucks, he'll tell you that sucks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and maybe he'll drop a blade on it too. <laughs> I, I don't really have a problem blowing stuff up. So that's nice of those guys to say. I mean, it was like family. And that was like, you asked, you know, you kind of sent me a little bit of what you were thinking and asking me what I remember about the projects. And honestly, as much as the golf is cool, you remember stuff with the guys. I mean, it's sort of, I think, you know, you hear baseball team, baseball guys or football guys talk about missing the locker room kind of stuff. And it's a little bit of that with, I mean, I was on the road this year, 315 days and last year, like 345. Wow. And now, we, it wasn't quite that much with Tom, but you're on the road with these guys. You spend more time with them than you do with your families. And so, you know, it's really important that you get along. And by getting along, I think you build a better golf course. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah. each guy not trying to like, don't touch my stuff, you know. Yeah, you're trying so, to bring out the best in, in everybody. And there's a, probably a little bit of competitiveness too, right? You're just trying to bring your A game because you know the guy 
you know, on the other side of the property is doing Absolutely. the same. Absolutely. And, you know, that we had a little bit of that at uh, Stonewall, the second Stonewall, which Brian talked to you in the interview that he did with you about that was his first job. But Brian was there. Eric was there. And I was there and I was doing the bunkers on that course. I'd never built a bunker with an excavator and I wanted to give it a try because Eric was going to do them, but he couldn't spend time there. So I was like, I'll try it. I never built an excavator bunker. So I was building bunkers, but I still did some greens. But anyway, between the three of us building it, it just became this kind of contest. Like, oh, that's crazy. I'm going to build something wilder. And Tom showed up at some point on the ninth. He's like, we're just going to build a flat green over here. I don't know if you've been there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it's like the ninth green is just a tabletop. It's like, okay, we're going to calm this thing down. So it definitely gets competitive. Like, And then not in a bad way, but it's like, wow, that's cool. I don't want to be left behind. I'm going to try to put my A game on this. And uh, anyway, working with those guys has always been fantastic. And, you know, I've been fortunate to work with Gil and his guys some too. And But Tom's guys are sort of like family. I know them better than anybody. Yeah, that's great. Hey, uh, you mentioned working for Gil. Uh, one thing I, I think is relevant for sort of my target audience, which is, which is elite junior golfers uh, and, and their parents, frankly. Uh, Oakland Hills is really the epicenter of junior golf in 2024. It's hosting the U.S. Junior Amateur. And I know it was recently renovated, you know, by Gil with your help. So two things I really wanted to understand. One is sort of the differences between working with Gil versus working with with Tom. And then second, any sort of tidbits in terms of that renovation project, uh, bringing it back to its Donald Ross roots and then also what we might expect this summer uh, with Oakland Hills. Yeah, you know, as far as the difference in working with the two, we've talked a little bit earlier about just working with Tom and his guys. And most of the work I did with Tom was in new golf courses. And with Gil, it's really been renovation work. Um, and with Tom's group, we I, was, I worked with a larger group of guys with Tom. There were tended to be four or five of us or three of us on a site kind of working together. And with Gil's job, the Oakland Hills job was during COVID. And so I was there quite a bit with, you know, Gil was traveling. He did a pretty good job, but it was a hard, it was hard to get to. He was driving from Philadelphia at wow. times to come out and work for a couple of days and then would take off. And uh, so I was working there with Ryan Farrow for a short period, maybe for three or four months during COVID. And then Blake Conan actually came out, got him to come help for a couple of months. So it was a smaller staff of guys, didn't work with as many of Gil's guys. Um, but, you know, they're both, the thing about both of them is they both work really hard. I kind of sometimes think about how guys would talk about Michael Jordan being the best basketball player, but he also worked, practiced harder than anybody. And both of those guys work harder than anyone you'll ever see. They just, you know, they love doing it and they're not mailing it in at all. And it's just, there's a passion there. And that's, I think that's what they share. Um, you know, they're different people, but I think they just share a passion for doing this kind of work. Then as far as you were asking just, you know, what kind of intricacies or what are the tricks of Oakland Hills or. Yeah. Just about, just about the nature. Cause that course has really evolved over time. I mean, they call it the monster, right? And I think, yep. I think sort of the trick maybe in, in terms of bringing it back to its original Donald Ross roots, but then maybe this broader theme about like when you're building or renovating a championship course, which 
is going to host a championship. And I imagine it has even bigger aspirations beyond just the U.S. junior. But then also the trick between balancing that off with making it also still reasonable and playable for everyday play for its members. And I think that's really kind of what happened out there was make it was, you know, the monster. And I think they may have gotten a little carried away with that element and the Reese Jones renovations that had happened over the years. I mean, you would go out there and it was just lined with bunkers and um, it wasn't much fun for the members. I don't think, I think if you were, you know, you got offline, you're in these deep bunkers and the stra- the strategic element was kind of gone. It almost had turned into a penal golf course where you miss and you're in trouble and it was hard to get out. And they kept stretching the bunkers further down the fairway and the, they sort of would build one bunker up behind the next one. So you could sort of see the new ones that they added and that the art of it wasn't the greatest. I tell you, when I got there, I had never been there and we were talking about my dad a little bit and he finished second in the U S open there by one shot in 1961. Oh wow! And so he would, he would gripe to me about the ninth hole before I ever got there. I hit that green all four days and made four every time. And when you get up there, just blow that green up. And there was actually an article in the Detroit paper about that. Just, But he's like, yeah, get rid of that thing. <laughs> but I got up there and I was kind of expecting to see something like a Medina or I don't know, just something that I wasn't that, that wasn't that interesting. It was just hard and narrow. And the greens there are phenomenal. I Honestly, they might be the best set of greens I've ever seen. Wow. Just for 18 holes, just really interesting contours but yet not over the top but really good and uh when we removed a lot of the bunkering that had been added just and got some of the little corners and the little shapes back in the greens it was just amazing what kind of revealed itself i don't know it's honestly one of the best golf courses i've ever really been part of or seen um for a parkland golf course it's really pretty amazing but we did with with that work we got the bunkers there's a lot of ways you can run the ball on as a member, but with those green contours, it's not like, oh, it's wide open. You can just run it in everywhere and have just, you know, the, the green contour is going to take you somewhere you may not want to go. But for a 20 handicapper, he's pretty happy to be on the green, but a good player, they still have to be really accurate with the approach yeah. shots. And uh, I don't know, I was really impressed by the place and the, the maintenance staff there does a great job. I mean, I wish I was a good junior. I'd love to go play there. Um, <laughs> And it's actually, you know, what's kind of funny. I was thinking they actually did the the last Reese Jones renovation. And one of the impetus of that happening was my cousin Bill Haas in the U.S. Amateur shot 29 on the back nine. And they're like, if it's just some Bill Haas guy that no one's ever heard of can shoot 29, what are the pros going to do to this place? So that was even part of what happened. So I had some good family connections to that place too. It was pretty cool to be. Oh, that's place to be. That's interesting. Okay, well, that's that's fascinating. I appreciate the insight. And like I said, I hopefully we'll see it this summer. You never know. Um, qualifying for the U.S. Juniors always a bit. Yeah, I mean, I hope, I hope you and your son get up there because it's really. I mean, it. You know, we did it during COVID, and I I don't know that a lot of people have seen the changes there. I mean, it's great that this tournament will be there. I didn't really realize it was coming, but. It's really, really, really good. And it's I think it's one of the cooler championship golf courses, yet a member's golf course that can be enjoyable. And I think that's where Gil nailed it, making something that members can enjoy, but yet you know, could host the US Open with no problem. So And I mentioned um if we transition here, 
you know, you've sort of, I think maybe intentionally been a little bit behind the scenes, like not taking, you know, not putting yourself in the limelight, um, just letting the work speaks for itself. I think more recently, your your name is out there. You are the designer or, or the builder of the tree farm uh, with Zach Blair and routed by Tom Doak. And this is one of the most big name courses that's been opened in, in 2023 is getting a lot of buzz. Uh, was recently ranked in the top 100 on the top 100 golf courses website uh, in the U.S. And just this just across town, you know, old Barnwell, we talked about with Brian last week, you know, Aiken, South Carolina becoming sort of the new hotbed of golf is just getting a ton of attention. So, you know, kudos to you, obviously this, this, this journey and this path that you've been on everything leading up into this point uh, to be heavily involved in, in a project as significant as tree farm. But like, how did, how did that all come about? Um, I was, what the heck was I doing? I was in Atlanta. What the heck? I don't even remember. I was. I don't even remember why I was in Atlanta. <laughs> but anyway, Will Smith called me and it's like, want to know if I wanted to come down to go to a hoopie and to play. I don't even know what the event was, but it's like, yeah, I'll come down and play. And then the day later, he's like, hey, Zach's flying in to Atlanta and needs a ride. Is there any chance you could give him a ride? And so I was like, yeah, I can do that. So I picked Zach up at the airport in Atlanta and drove down that night to a hoopie. So we talked for a few hours and I was like, yeah, I heard you're doing a golf course and, you know, we're trying to do the buck club. I've seen that element of uh, what you were trying to do before. And we just talked and for, you know, three hour drive and got down to a hoopie and spent a couple days playing golf there. And they were going to go up to the tree farm, he and Will and a couple other guys, to go look at the land. And I'm like, well, I'm driving back. I was going to go to St. Louis. And I'm like, I'm driving back that way. I'll just stop by and take a look with you guys. Just check it out after we've been talking about it. And we went up and rode around and Zach had a routing at that time. And we rode around it and started talking about it. And I just, you know, you were saying those guys said, I wouldn't be afraid to tell you it sucked. And so I kind of told Zach that a few of the whole, like, didn't say it sucks. Like, you know, you might not want to, take some of these contours head on like these big hills kind of goes directly perpendicular into them you might want to try to tack angle across them or just it's getting kind of crazy the way you're going up and down it won't be much fun to walk and anyway we just started talking and at that point you know originally i think he was going to use king collins to do it and at that point whatever had happened with those guys they were done and so zach a few days later is hey would you want to like help me with this and be part of it. And it's like, I think we could work real well together. And I was like, sure, that'd be really cool. And, you know, part of what you were saying, I, and I don't really ever feel like I've had a lot of ego with this. And I thought, you know, this is Zach's, this is his baby. He's put this thing together. He found the land. He got the investors. It's like, this isn't for me to just to come in here and start telling you how to build everything and how to design your golf holes. And uh, so we worked on the routing for a few months together, back and forth, kind of like you and I are doing here, just talking on the computer and sending sketches back and forth. And we had a lot of really cool holes. And a lot of times, you know, we weren't sure if it was going to be a 36 hole golf course or 27 holes, or if you're going to have 18 in a short course. And so a lot of times the clubhouse was moving and you'd get pretty far with something, maybe be missing three or four holes that weren't quite there. And then all of a sudden we'd be off to something new. And we were just never 
really getting it finished. It's like, what if we, I just mentioned to Tom or to uh, Zach about maybe we should just see if Tom would take a look at this and see what he thinks. So it was like, it's pretty much the thing he loves to do is routings and look at topo maps and figure out golf holes. And I'm sure he would be interested and just to sidetrack real quickly, I kind of had been working the year before on this project that was possibly going to happen in Hokkaido, Japan. And a very wealthy Asian guy wanted to build a Lynx course over there. And there was some property way up at the top of Japan. And I had talked to Tom about possibly doing the routing. And he had mentioned in the past that he would kind of like to do what Mackenzie had done, where he would just do some routings like in Australia or when Mackenzie did Crystal Downs and really not have to spend a lot of time there. But if he had the right people, mm-hmm to sort of build the golf course. So that Hokkaido thing fell apart after a while, but I knew Tom was interested in possibly that element of things. And I was like, oh, maybe he would be interested in this. And so I mentioned to Zach and Zach then just reached out to Tom on a phone call and it kind of just went from there. I think I'll let Zach explain it to you sometime or, you know, it's been put in print with how it happened. So. Yeah, that's, that's really neat. And I think, um, you know, then the routing continued to evolve from there. Yeah. Uh, but um, the tree farm property, I guess the two things I wanted to ask you about. One is like the construction process and Zach's involvement. Cause I know Zach, when he had this vision and God bless him, like we need more Zach players in the world, in the, in the golf world, right. Just to have the vision and the passion to drive something, you know, from beginning to end and actually put it into place. Yeah. It's really pretty amazing for a 30 year old guy to do it while he's trying to play the yeah. tour. And, and, you know, do all that stuff. Very amazing. And yeah, you could definitely use more guys like yeah, that. And, and I remember his, some of his initial sketches, which are very, very detailed, but they were, I would sort of describe as like extreme takes on, you know, template holes and, and very big scale. And some of the work he was doing with uh, King Collins in Utah. And I think maybe initially in the South Carolina project, but like, I imagine he had a lot of input like during the construction process. Was he like popping down multiple times? And like you said, like trading messages, like, yeah, no, he was there a lot. I mean, he was injured his shoulder. He was going through soldier, the yeah, shoulder surgery. So he was down there a lot and not, I mean, probably once every month for a week or so, you know, something like that, maybe a little more here and there. He was definitely around and definitely had a lot of ideas for what he wanted to see. And there was times he wasn't sure what he wanted to do or if there was, wasn't sure what to do at all. And so we just kind of ham and egged it with that. And, you know, I built all the greens. I'd say, I don't know, five or six of the greens, four or five of them were probably something I just kind of came up with. And then the rest of them are based on something Zach wanted to try or, a little bit of both or completely, you know, the Redan green, obviously that was something they talked about and, you know, the routing, it's pretty much sitting there. And, uh, you know, but there was definitely Zach had ideas that he wanted to try to explore and we went with that. And I would try to say, you know, that's a good idea, but it's not going to maybe work exactly like you're thinking because of certain drainage issues or to build that we have to do this or some more technical issues and try to help maybe move it to something that could work. And, uh, but we didn't do a lot of templates. I mean, had the Redan green, we did a punch bowl, which was something that sort of evolved on from one of our different routings that we had done. Then we have a green that's a hole that's basically kind of modeled after Pine Valley's fifth hole. 
But other than that, there's not really templates out there. Yeah. The other thing I wanted to ask about, and I didn't even make this, I played it back in uh, October, but one of the things I didn't even make the connection, but we talked about your family's connection with Augusta and there are, there's a, definitely a spot or two at tree farm where you're, I mean, it's not that far from Augusta, right? Yeah. But where you're getting sort of this Augusta national vibe with like turf, you know, connected turf in between holes. I'm thinking of like nine, 10, 11, and just like the long views where you just see grass, uh, you know, short grass everywhere. Like given your family's connection with Augusta and, and your personal connection with Augusta, were you, was there some element of that that you think came through in the construction? You know, I wasn't thinking that way really like oh let's try to build augusta or something anything like that the thing that kind of the augusta thing that kind of came to me was just the land the scale of the land and the the amount of movement that you know that there's a hundred feet of movement in the ground and you know augusta's got that big movement and so some of that definitely resonated that we had some of those big scale moves in the golf holes and that was one of the tougher things to build just because there's some big stuff there and the connect you know the old augusta the original no second cut and not a bunch of extra trees being planted every year and that kind of stuff like when i first started going out there when you would walk out of the back of the clubhouse and just see everything mowed at the same height and you could see you know from the clubhouse down to number down to number three and down to number seven and you know you could almost see down to 15 green really just because there weren't any trees in the way and that whole, uh, that's a very appealing thing to me. And the simplicity of it, we were, we never, we didn't really want to have a lot of bunkers. Like we don't need to overdo this. And so that, you know, that element might be taken as an Augusta kind of concept, just kind of let the ground do the trick, do the work. And uh, the way the golf is played, it wasn't thought of from an Augusta standpoint, but we were trying to let you have enough rope to hang yourself. And maybe you don't really realize there are some places you can get in trouble. It looks pretty friendly, but hey, if I actually catch that slope over there, if I go that way, I'm probably not going to get up and down. And those are the little tricks that when you play Augusta enough times, you start realizing, hey, you know, it's where you miss and those kind of things. So there's definitely some Augusta there, but it wasn't like, yeah, let's try to build Augusta. I remember a friend told me that you and, and Zach had taken a trip out to the U.K., uh, at some point yep. during early on in this process. And, and there, there's one kind of cool feature, I think, on the right of the fifth hole. I played with Ben Warren when I was out there, and uh, he, okay. he called them Kybrows. It's sort of like these brick sort of inlays. Whereas I think from a strategic playability standpoint, if you sort of bail out right of the screen, it adds a little bit of interest and maybe a little bit more difficulty in terms of your shot, you know, running a shot up into the green but is was that something that you you saw sort of in, the, in your UK trip that you wanted to incorporate? Uh, I had been to Rye a few times before that, and always thought those things are cool. And I've seen Gills done them a few times in places as well. But uh, yeah, we had we. I mean, Zach was really into the Heathland stuff, talking about that nonstop. Really, for as soon as I met him, really. That was what he was really wanting to do. He's like, how can we grow Heather out here? He's like, I really don't know if we can grow Heather in South Carolina, but we can try <laughs> or figure something out that looks like it. But so we were trying to get some Harry Cole stuff. We were actually were doing, we were doing more little ditches like you see at Sunningdale and thing. And I don't know what 
some of them have just gone away and we're going to try to get a few of them back. But, uh, and there's still some of them there, but, uh, that was a big part, just trying to get some Heathland-y vibe to it. And the, like the 13th green has some moundy stuff around it. That's kind of trying to emulate some of that. And, you know, we built some of the little, I don't know, we were calling them loading decks out there because they had these ridges on the property where people used to load the wood trucks where they just piled up dirt in this little ridge where they would kind of take the little skid steer up onto the back of a long bed truck. And But they look a lot like the little ridges that you'll see at Sunningdale or Slinley Forest that are elevated, little berms, cop or whatever. So we were trying to do that kind of stuff too. Uh, that's cool. So Ben Warren, I think, was involved early on in, in the project with some of the you know, some yep. of the bigger shaping. And it was great playing with him because I think it was his first time back seeing the finished product. So he he had some sense of obviously what was going to be there, but then actually seeing it in its final form. And I think one of the things playing with him that day is I think his respect and reverence for you really shown through. It's just times where he, you know, he wasn't maybe 100% sure what was going to be the finished product. But I remember him noting that, you know, he knew that you were going to get this attention to detail right. He just kept mentioning like a, this attention to detail. When I think of Tree Farm, a, a couple of things. Like, I, I think it just has this like elegance to it. Like it has this real like sense of of place, you know, and even, even like the, the bunkering, you know, it varies throughout the course. But there's times where like I think of like right of 18. I think Ben actually had a hand in that. It looks just sort of like this old borrow pit. Like it had been there for like 100 and 20 yeah, years and that's basically what it yeah. was <laughs> and we just kind of left it there because we we're like it's kind of cool let's just leave it and actually kevin kisner came out there one day with zach and zach was still i don't know if he was 100 percent sure we should just leave it and kevin's just like oh you just leave that there yeah. and it's like so we ended up and it's it's evolving i'm actually going down there in a few weeks and going to try to get in there and just it was eroding a lot while we were out there and we didn't have a chance to really get it dialed in like we want. So we're going to go fix that up a little bit in a few weeks. But uh, yeah, that's exactly what it was though, Pitt. <laughs> and I, I think about also, I think it's the eighth hole, sort of like the tiger line, if you're going to be super aggressive and try to carry all that stuff down the right and, and the stuff you're carrying over, it just looks like, you know, it had been there forever as well. It's just like those, those little things. Um, it just like that, like I said, the elegance of it. And then, I, then the other thing I would mention is just the greens. I mentioned this earlier in terms of like your ability to tie the green into everything else that's going around and have them be, you know, you built them all and they're, but they're, they're varied, they're interesting, you know, they're the internal contours and everything makes sense with everything that's around it. And then you've got this, like you said, variety of, of short game shots around the green and the ability to, I think, run up, uh, shots into the greens. Um, there's just like a, a very, uh, elegant, you know, from a playability standpoint. Yeah. I appreciate that. I mean, that's, that's kind of the word we used a lot actually during construction was just kind of keep it simple and as elegant as we can and not really look like we did anything if we could help it. And, uh, that's probably a little different than what Brian and Blake were doing at old Barnwell. You know, they weren't trying to make it look like they didn't yeah. do anything, which they did a great job. I had never even seen it until a couple of weeks ago, which is kind of crazy because I was down there for. Working on that job, I was probably there for about 16 months, and not once did it go out to Old Barnwell while they were working on it. I didn't see it, so I never saw anything they were building. So, did you guys? I, I, this is where I wanted to go next because I mentioned at the outset, like Aiken, South Carolina, it's like all of a sudden, I mean, it's a, a, just an awesome town to hang out in, actually. 
but it's all of a sudden become sort of the hotbed of golf, right? You've got Tree Farm, Old Barnwell, opposite ends of town. Like where you, you said you hadn't been out there, but Aiken's not a huge town. Were you like running into like Old Barnwell? Well, we, we, we probably hung out together almost every night that we were all in town. Yeah. Like literally at dinner together, I don't know, couldn't even count how many times. And one of the kids that was working with them, Gray Carlton, was kind of helped. Like they're sort of intern that ended up helping him do a lot of the shaping. Great. He couldn't get started with them. And he actually worked on our job for about two months, month, maybe a month before he could get going at Old Barnwell. And uh, it was funny. His dad was actually my fraternity brother in college. And so it was, uh, so, so we had a lot of connections and we spent a lot of time together, but we didn't really talk a lot about what we were doing with our golf holes. You know, we just talked about other dumb stuff. So, yeah. Uh, I guess it's I, I think there's parallels here that I maybe want to explore a little bit further. But like, like, I think of Old Barnwell, like the, the question du jour right now is like Old Barnwell, Tree Farm, if you had 10 rounds, like which would you, you know, which would you choose? And, and I think people are people want to get sort of ahead of this narrative. They want to be like, feel like they've sort of, they've sort of set this narrative. But like all I could say is. They're both excellent golf courses and i would say like seek them out make up your own mind but i yeah i I think in a lot of ways like these i would call like they're not really rivalries but i would call them like friendly rivalries of courses that are quote-unquote neighbors but like i think of like ballyneal and sandhills like sandhills is the king right but there's folks that like ballyneal and prefer ballyneal there's folks that prefer sandhills neither one is right or wrong I think it actually is yeah, make either one of them good or bad. Like yeah. one's bad because you like the other one more. Yeah, I mean, exactly. You know? Exactly. I don't, I honestly think when it comes to old Barnwell and tree farm, people probably aren't going to be in the middle. They're going to have one. They're going to be on one side or the other, but neither one is right or wrong. I think it actually says more about the golfer than it says about the golf courses themselves. And the fact that you're having this, this debate or having this conversation means that both courses are, are great. And I think of like the other example I might think of is like national versus Shinnecock. You know, those are obviously two of the best golf courses in the world. Yeah. If you're going to compare us to that, that's pretty good. I mean, it's- <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I think it's just like the conversation is great. Like people, people should definitely seek them out. Like I said, it probably says a little bit more about you in terms of what you prefer. If you find other kindred spirits that have the similar opinion, you're likely to, you know, you're likely to get along with them. Great. Right. But I think, yeah, go see both courses if you get a chance and definitely jump on that opportunity. They're they're great. I'm, I'm super, super excited for you. Yeah. And they said, you know, they're, they're built at the same time. If they were built 20 years apart or 10 years apart, I don't think you'd be having that. But the fact that they both are kind of coming online at the same time, obviously, yeah. will have some of that effect. And, you know, what's funny about that, which hasn't really been talked about in any of these little conversations, is Brian and Blake and I were actually working together on a job right before that these two courses happened. We were doing a six hole reversible golf course in Wilson, Arkansas. And the three of us were going to get interviewed for it. And we're like, I don't know if it's worth it, but what if we all three just go in together and see what we can do? So literally the summer and fall, right before I started tree farm, I was down there with Blake most of the time because Brian was busy up at Lido, but he came down some. And so we literally designed and built the golf course together right before that. And at the time that I talked to Zach, we were working there and I talked to those two guys about, why don't you guys come help me shape the greens and stuff down here? And they were in on that. 
And then all of a sudden they get a little squirrely and they did, they had this another job of their own and going on an eight. I'm like, come on for real. That can't be true. And so it's a cool thing. Cause we've been really good friends for a long time, all three of us and work together a lot. And so it's a little odd that that happened for all of us, yeah. like that. but you know, we definitely, it's, you know, came right out of Arkansas and ended up doing those things in Aiken. Yeah. I think when these sorts of things happen where you've got two courses being built, by folks that are colleagues, friends, really kind of family, as as uh, was mentioned earlier, you know, it brings the best out in both parties or all parties involved. And I think we as golfers, we we win because I think like Tree Farm is excellent, Old Barnwell is excellent. They're different. You mentioned in terms of the style, um, but they're they're definitely a higher uh, standard of golf, and I think they're 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 pushing the game forward from my perspective. Yeah, that's that's. That's all great. I mean, if there's more good golf courses, that's great. That's a good thing. <laughs> yeah, so, exactly. Now, and Aiken, you, Aiken, you, Aiken's a pretty great spot for just Palmetto. I mean, it's such a wonderful place. I don't know if you've played there or been down there, but no, but I know you had you've been you've been working on it or you've had some hand in it, right? Yeah, guy. Just I actually went down there. Had never been to Aiken, and like about a year before I met Zach, a friend of mine here, Roger Null, who was a longtime greenkeeper in St. Louis at tons of places and has done some golf courses by himself. He's like been a member at Palmetto since the eighties. He kept telling me, you got to go down. So I went down with he and another guy named Matt Kofsky from here. And I literally played, I don't know, six holes. I was like, how do I join? Cause you first time you go in there, it's just so it's just golf and you go in the pro shop and there's a little snack bar. It almost looks like a Muni golf course with a cooler with beer for a dollar 50 and, you know, little sandwiches and that's it. And just all about golf. So I tried to join literally the first day I was there and was on a waiting list. And it'd been, I'd actually just got in this past week, two weeks <laughs> ago. But uh, so Aiken is a cool, has a, a lot of meaning for me because I'd never joined a golf course in my life. And that was the only place I ever tried to join was Palmetto. And uh, so there's a lot of cool stuff in Aiken. And you know, I haven't I've been to Sage Valley and, you know, a lot of people really like Sage Valley. And I mean, Aiken Golf Club, the Jim McNair, the work he's done there is just phenomenally cool. So there's a little bit for everybody down there. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, I guess it's sort of coming full circle because because King Collins, I think, has a project in the Aiken area. Yeah. Now too, and the funny well. thing, yeah. the guy that's that's from what I hear that's sort of behind that, he actually was playing with Zach and I at a hoopie. <laughs> So when that day that we met, he was talking about maybe getting involved in the tree farm. So he was down there that day and spent a lot of time with him. And so I guess he decided to go a different way. But uh, yeah, and you know, who knows if that happens or doesn't happen, but if it does, great. It's just, you know, another comparison. Maybe it's another great golf course for people to play. Yeah. There's something about the sand and the pine trees and the land movement. It just, uh, you just think yeah. golf. You can't help there's but think a lot it. of it there. And you kind of wonder when you're down there, it's like, wonder how Pinehurst, I know how it happened because there was the hotel, but there was a hotel in Aiken also at one time that burned down a big old wooden hotel. But, you know, it's like, wonder how no one ever did any of that golf stuff here in this sandy area, but just how it happens. So as we wrap up here though, so what's, what's next for you? What do, you do you have any current projects you're working on? You want to highlight or things that are in the hopper? Yeah. You know, we, so I was working with Matt Smallwood. You mentioned Benny Warren. Benny was down at the tree farm for a while, but Matt Smallwood and the guy Eamon Sullivan and I were doing most of the shaping work at tree farm. And uh, 
Eamon was out in a project in Montana and I don't know, some things happened and it turns out. So Matt and Eamon and I are going to do this new project out in Montana, not too far from Rock Creek. And so we just started a little bit of work a few weeks ago, maybe a month ago. And it's just a little too frozen right now to keep going, but it's a pretty cool spot on just a, a wonderful ranch and a great client. And I don't know, it's on the big hole river in Montana. And it's just like, I'd never trout fish before, but it's like, it's, I don't know. It's like a movie set basically hanging out wow. out there and it's very different than rock Creek, but it's a cool spot. So going to get to do another project kind of from scratch out there, which is great with the same oh, cool. guys. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. That's awesome. And then just a little motivation. Like I'm heading to West Bend, Wisconsin tomorrow just to go get a master plan started for West Bend Country Club. We've been working there for 12 years, but they want a piece of paper now. So I'm going to head up there and just put that together for them. But that place is always great to go hang out at too. Yeah, that's cool. That's cool. Well, Kai, I definitely appreciate your time. It's been awesome just hearing about your life and your journey through the game. I really I personally just want to thank you for all the, the work that you had and some of literally some of my favorite golf courses in the world. And it's just great to see you continuing to add to the game. And I'm just excited to see, you know, where your career goes from here. Andrew Lewis, welcome back to the Angle of Attack. How's it going? Yes, sir. Good. Everything's good. Excited to be here. So this is uh, part two of our tournament prep three-part series. Last time we talked about pre-tournament, the, the days and weeks leading up to a uh, planned event and some of the best practices in terms of just feeling prepared and getting prepared for that event. So this time we're going to talk about the practice round. So generally that's going to be the day before. We can just assume that's going to be the day before for purposes of this discussion. But just like building on everything that we talked about last time, making those notes, getting the yardage book, checking the wind conditions. Now you're now it's the day of. Like you're you're closer to the real course tournament conditions. You know, you're you're there on site. But what are what have you seen as like the best practices in this space and maybe things that junior golfers should be picking up on that they might not be picking up on? Yeah, you know, if you think about whenever a kid wins at his home course, everyone always say, well, well it's just his home course. So that's why he won. Which all that means is that there's a huge advantage if you know the golf course really, really well. So much so that players will be like, well, he must, he's not even that good. He just won because it's his home course. So I always approach it as a practice round. You're just trying to make the golf course like your home course to where you feel like you have an advantage. And so what makes, what makes someone's home course easier to them? It starts with they have a lot of conviction about what to hit off the tee. Like it's, they almost never make a bad decision. So if you did the stuff that we talked about last time, um, as far as like doing Google Earth and going through your yardage book, you should be showing up to your practice round, um, having a really good idea of what you're going to hit. And, and now the day of is all about affirming what you're going to hit. Sometimes we get to the course and some of the, some of the tee shots may make us uncomfortable or we realize the fairways are firmer or the fairways are softer and I can hit driver. Um, so it's really coming up with, based on the wind conditions, what, what am I going to hit off the tee? Um, and making note of those in your yardage book. From there, I would be uh, making yardage buckets. So if let's say I'm 160 yards out on my approach shots, I'd be making little notes um, of like 25 yardage buckets of how many shots I have from 100 to 125, 126 to 150, 151 to 175. 
Uh, that way in my warm up or in a, in a post round uh, practice round, I can kind of go isolate those yardages that seem to be really, really important. As you're playing, let's say you hit the middle of every fairway. It's probably a good idea to be throwing some balls in the rough, like really, really trying to understand the condition of the golf course. That's usually the main thing that messes kids up is like the golf course grass or the, the firmness or the softness is just so much different than they're used to, um, including the fairways. Now, th those two things are fairly easy, like tee shot strategy and then what approach shots you're going to have in. The real like meat of the practice round is spending a lot of time on and around the greens because that's where most of the time it just gets it gets uh, questionable just because maybe the you're when you're chipping, it spins a little bit different or the greens are really fast um, or the rough is really bad uh, or the bunker is a little bit different. And so spending a majority of your time on and around the greens is important. I'm not a huge proponent of like spending a ton of time like putting to, you know, the holes where they're dotted. I mean, if you you're going to get the pin sheets uh, the night of the events, I mean, you're going to be able to dot the pins and look at your yardage book and potentially look at, you know, how much slope a hole has. I would be spending more time just in general getting used to hitting chip shots to different parts of the green. If you want to hit them to those hole locations, that's great. Um, getting used to speed control getting used to seeing the proper lines based on the speed you're going to have. Just feeling comfortable with the speed is probably more important than like hitting a few six footers to like that whole location where the pin's going to be. Uh, because without a doubt, when a kid plays a new course, their speed control is, is usually off like the first nine holes just because it's very, very different. Hitting tons of bunker shots is another thing that I, I like to do. Depending on the event you're playing, I mean, we play some places that aren't necessarily like the nicest places in the world. And, and sometimes you'll have some bunkers that are like less than desirable to be in at certain points. So I like to check almost all the bunkers, like take a look, go look at all of them and just understand like, you know what, this is probably one that I should avoid. Um, or if I should just be trying to avoid these at all costs. I mean, I remember an event last year, there was no sand. They were literally hitting out of rock. And so we, we told our players like, listen, these are like hazards. Do not go anywhere near them uh, because they're so penal. So tee shot strategy, approach buckets, and then tons and tons of time around the greens is, is generally my formula. So in, in that example that you just mentioned with the bunkers or even just even around the green, are you having the juniors like just put a giant like X in the yardage book, like around that bunker or like where to miss or like where in the green is like the easiest place to miss if they were to miss? Yeah. If, if something's blatant in the practice round, sure. I would say a lot of that would happen like the night that they're preparing. Uh, so, so for example, when, when my son and I sit down and we do our prep for the next day, we'll go over the whole locations. Uh, we'll dot the pens in the yardage book. And then we'll talk about relative to that pen, you know, where is the best spot to miss? Where's the worst spot to miss? Um, so it's not necessarily always done like during the practice round. Again, practice rounds can be time. They can be very like time sensitive. So sometimes it's hard to catch everything. But if you have a good yardage book and you've played and know where the pen is, because sometimes the pens are also not dotted. If they are, that that is nice, but it's not all that it's not necessary. I would say that can be done when you have time to just sit down and reflect on the round and look at your yardage book and look at the whole location sheet. But yes, you should be putting something. Having those reminders is vital because in the heat of the battle, in the heat of the moment, when you're making decisions, it's easy to forget that stuff. And sometimes you if you've only played a course once, maybe you don't remember that that the back of the green or over the green or that bunker was terrible. So making those notes at some point before you tee off would be, yes, very important. And you mentioned um, speed control on the greens. 
there's one thing that maybe I have observed and I, I haven't been as nearly many tournaments as you have. And I don't know if this is commonplace or not. I've tend to notice that like the green speeds day one of the tournament are usually at least a, a tick faster than they are in the practice round. Is that commonplace? And like, should junior golfers be factoring that in, um, in their prep? I'll say two things about green speeds practice round today of, Yes, they usually are a little faster if it's a if it's like an elevated event. If it's a like a local two day event, I haven't seen that necessarily. But I think as you go play some of the events like Luke's been playing these national things, they're definitely going to speed them up, uh, probably just to cause some havoc for the players. The, the one thing I hear is a lot is like the practice screens like way different than the course. And I always say, it's not like they have like a specific mower for the practice screen. I mean, <laughs> they're mowing the the greens with the same mower everywhere. So um, I don't necessarily see that. I see people struggle with the transition from the practice screen to the course because a lot of practice screens either have no slope or they have too much slope. So they're really not getting a um, like a fair assessment of the greens. That's why I say it's so important the practice round to do a lot of speed control work because the practice screen isn't necessarily a lot like the greens on the golf course, not the grass. The grass is the same. The slopes are not necessarily the same. Oh, that's interesting. Yes. So we mentioned yardage book. We got to put a plug in for our friends at Straka. Uh, Straka line yardage books are, are supporting the driven golf podcast and the angle of attack. They're offering 20% off. If you go to their website, uh, for their yardage books and their greens books, which have a, a ton of great detail. I r- honestly think like you shouldn't go into a tournament without strike a line. hundred percent agree. If you enter code driven in the cart, uh, you get 20% off of your, your purchase. So definitely take advantage of that. So yeah, it's track a line. That's our, that's our go-to as well. An interesting note and something that might be a little bit controversial with, with some kids is when I have Cameron play practice rounds, I have him keep score. I started doing that in the beginning of this year. One was because I wanted him holding out putts. It's so interesting. I would watch I watch kids do practice rounds and they never make a putt, which then they seems like they struggle with their holding speed on like three to ten foot putts. So that was one one piece. But then two, I felt like it gave some color to him of like what he is likely going to shoot or like what holes may be giving him the most trouble so that we can adjust our strategy versus having never played a golf course. I think it if you think about this idea of your home course and this idea of a lot of people don't want you to keep score. Well, you keep score on your home course all the time. And it's frequent when a kid goes and plays their home course, they'll play really, really well. So like keeping score in a practice round should have no effect on your expectation heading into it. So it may be something it's, it is one of those things that's kind of unique to what I generally tell players. But if, if you haven't done that, I would encourage you at some point to maybe try keeping score in a practice round to see if it kind of gives you a little bit of confidence heading into the event. And if you don't play well, then it should be like a wake up call. Like, Hey, I need to go fix this stuff after the round versus it's hard to tell how you're playing heading into an event. If you just don't keep score. You know, especially at the event you're going to play. So that's that's my two cents I wanted to throw out there for practice rounds. Uh, you you hit on one key thing. I mean, sometimes you can't necessarily pick the times they might have a shotgun start in the afternoon, but I think leaving yourself time to digest and maybe 
practice on something on the range after the round if you can pick something earlier enough where you can finish the round um and still have some yeah. time to do that as, or get on the putting green as needed yeah for sure so we last time we talked about just tournament prep being a performance differentiating factor or maybe being the difference between winning or losing or getting into a, a future event or not getting into a future event like it being that important like have you seen case studies where like this type of practice round prep has been a differentiating factor maybe maybe for cameron or in other juniors that you've been working with yeah for sure i think again practice rounds themselves like just playing the golf course i don't think is a differentiator but when you show up and you have a plan of like how you're going to spend your time i mean i can't stress enough like really really understanding your short game shots at a new facility is probably the biggest one that and the speed control like getting in bunkers hitting the shots necessary feeling comfortable hitting those shots is it has to be worth a shot or two around um and if you do that over two or three days yeah you're talking four to six shots i have definitely seen that when i have gone to practice round with kids because it's really easy to just go and play around and unless you hit it in a bunker I'm not going to be hitting it in a bunker or I'm not going to be hitting extra chip shots. I'm not going to be understanding the rough. So yes, it, having a plan besides just, I'm going to go do a practice round is definitely going to help you shoot lower scores. Yeah. That's interesting. You know, often like a, a caddy would probably serve a lot of this as like a sounding board, checking these things out during a tournament, making these observations and pointing things out. Uh, but junior golfers generally don't have that luxury, right? They have to really be their own, Caddy. So like, again, it makes it that much more important to be a differentiating factor between you and the field. Uh, if you have this mindfulness and this conviction to really go all in and really, you kind of have to serve as your own caddy in many ways. Yeah. Don't get me started on the idea that a junior does not get a caddy. That is one of my biggest beefs with junior golf. <laughs> um, but, but yeah, I mean, definitely the nice thing about doing the prep and having these conversations is that that is your time to have these conversations with your coach or with your dad, if they're educated or just even with yourself, like understanding, understanding things before versus making like in the moment decisions. Most of the time, a junior, especially if they're not playing very good, like making those in the moment decisions, they just aren't thinking very clearly. They probably have levels of cortisol going through them to where they're just not going to make a logical decision. So hopefully the, the prep is increasing the likelihood of you having a logical decision made when you're in that moment that is not black and white. You know, during a round of golf, tee shots are very black and white most of the time. Approach shots become a little bit more gray, but wedges and in is where it becomes very, very gray because you do have a lot of options, especially if you're a good player. So hopefully we have some logic before we've showed up to the golf course to make those easier to make. One last thing I observed Cameron, I was there on hand when he had his first, I think, 36-hole win earlier this year. And uh, I remember you making comments around specific prep for specific pin positions leading up to the event. And I remember just thinking to myself, like, that seemed to be above and beyond what most kids are doing, at least from my perspective. Have you seen, based on his success or other juniors that you work closely with in this aspect, like, where you absolutely know that that shot or that hole, what they were able to do and the score they were able to produce was a direct result of the prep that went into it? Yeah, probably not as much with the kids that I coach because I'm not with them pre-round very often. 
but I can I can speak to specifically I think the shot that I know you're talking about. So yeah, with Cameron, before he Cameron is a very very short hitter. Uh, relative to his peers so you know we've always said like strategy is going to be the way that he wins short game putting and good strategy so uh there was a hole on, on the front nine of the course he teed off on the back there was a hole on the front where we had said like maybe the pin was like 15 on and there was a bunker at 10 on so he had to for sure cover 10 so we said landed three short of the pin and three left of the pin he probably we were anticipating he was he was hitting an eight iron into the green and so we're staying there and I'm telling you like, okay, he's supposed to hit this, you know, basically nine feet short left. And sure enough, he hits it nine feet short left. It was like, well, that's what he was supposed to do. And so it just gave a lot of clarity to where he wasn't necessarily having to think. He lasers the flag and goes, okay, I'm trying to hit this three yards short, three yards left, cover the bunker, even if I maybe push it a little bit. And uh, he ended up making birdie. And it was just like this, you know, like proud moment of like, that's exactly how this is supposed to go. Um, and so our habit is, you know, we get the pin sheets, we look at the weather, we dot where the pins are and we write, we print out the pin sheet and we write down relative to the flag, like where we're anticipating we want to land it based on the wind condition, what we anticipate he has in for a club. Does that mean that that's always how that goes? No. Um, you know, maybe the wind switches or maybe the greens are a little bit different, but I mean, having that plan has sure helped his ability to score and, and frankly beat some people he probably shouldn't just because he's hitting like four woods in the greens when they're hitting like nine irons. Yeah. And I think the, the most important thing around that is just having a baseline and you can adjust yeah. from the baseline. But if you have a start, if you don't have a starting point, you're trying to guess and hoping that you guess right. But if you have a baseline and you can adjust because maybe it's 10 degrees colder than what you thought yeah. it was going to be, or the wind's coming in a different direction, you can make those adjustments on the fly. You know, a lot of people don't know stuff like this, but, you know, there are PJ Tour players that get reports daily, basically telling them how to play the golf course based on their shot patterns, based on where the pins are, based on the temperature, based on the wind conditions, basically saying, here's where the pin's going to be, and you should be aiming here with this yardage intent. You know, and it's it's like, you know, going to the poker table or the blackjack table and having, like, the perfect strategy heading in. Now, does that mean they're going to execute it perfectly? No, but it's the theory is it's allowing you not to execute perfectly. That's the whole point is you're not going to execute perfectly. So when I realized that's what PJ tour players are getting years ago, I was like, man, I've got to do something to help my son be able to have a similar chance like those guys have. And so that's where that all started. Yeah. That's a really interesting way to think of it because if, if you have a prep gap, right. Versus somebody in the field, you have to overcome that with a skill gap, right? And then I think as you get higher and higher and further and further in this junior golf landscape, yeah. the, 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 gaps the, are small. the gaps are very, very small. So you have to yeah. seek out these other ways to differentiate yourself. And like I said, you may beat guys that are, you're always trying to beat the guys that are ranked ahead of you in, in a tournament, right? That's the, that's the thing that's going to lead you to moving up in the rankings and the, the head-to-head and scoring relative uh, to the field. So this is something that I think is an absolute must for for junior golfers to look into. You know, that was what was so amazing about, you know, Tiger is that not only was he better than everybody, but he also clearly had better strategy than everybody. Um, and he had more discipline than everybody. So he was literally impossible to beat most weeks because no one was going to catch him from a skill standpoint. 
And then he never made an illogical decision for the most part. Um, and then weeks that he didn't necessarily win, he must have just had like his F game. But he still probably finished in the top 10 almost every time just because his strategy and his prep were just so, so good heading into it. Better than every other PGA Tour player. Yeah, for sure. Which is pretty crazy. For sure. All right, Andrew. Good. This is uh this has been awesome. It's um like I said, the second part of this three part series. Next time we're gonna talk about tournament prep day of of the tournament and also in between days, like uh post round, night before, just like best practices around just making yeah. sure that those three or four days are the best they possibly can be. And I look forward to having that discussion. That sounds great. Looking forward to it. All right, thanks. The Driven Golf Podcast is produced by Joseph K. If you like this episode, like it, subscribe, pass it on to a friend who might be interested. It really helps us out a lot. We'll be back in a couple weeks with the next episode. Until then, remember, in this great game, the journey is the gift. Enjoy the journey. To the sea, yeah, you know me. Spinning facts, y'all see. Talking with Kai Goldby. His roots from Illinois State. He got a golfing trait. His pops won the Master 68. Let's commemorate Kai's touch on the green. Ain't no joke. His shaping is fire. Straight blazing smoke. A gun for hire. People working with dope. In demand with deal hands. The man's a pro's pro. Driven golf podcast. Get in the swing. Kai's story on blast. We gotta sing. Just rolling with Jim Colton in this thing. Ipsy gold to the B, all hail the king. Driven golf podcast, get in the swing. Kai story on blast, we gotta sing. Just rolling with Jim Colton in this thing. Ipsy gold to the B, all hail the king. Trips to the UK to learn to gauge. Kai and Zach Blair, yeah, they on the same page. The greens at Tree Farm are all the rage. One of the best courses in all of the game. Coming straight up out of that dirt. Kai Gobi beating in work. Driven Golf Podcast, get in the swing. Kai story on blast, we gotta sing. Just rolling with Jim Colton in this thing. Gipsy Gold to the B, all hail the king.